This is the Your Kick-Ass Life Podcast with Andrea Owen, a no BS guide to self-help and badassery. Because ladies, let's face it, life's too short for it to not kick ass. And here's your host, the girl who serves it up straight with a side of crazy, Andrea Owen. This is the Your Kick-Ass Life podcast, episode number 72. All links and resources you hear in this podcast can be found by going to yourkickasslife.com forward slash 72. Hey, ass kickers. Welcome to another special edition of the Your Kick-Ass Life podcast. And I've been sitting here just avoiding hitting record, (laughs) palm sweating, feeling like I'm going to throw up. And this is, I feel like, wasn't it like in the 80s in those shows that we used to love to watch, like Family Ties and Growing Pains, where when they were t- going to talk about something like kind of heavy, <laughs> heavy topic, they were like, on today's special edition of Family Ties, like, you know, it was like adult content or something like that. Like, I feel like that's how I should preface this episode. And this is an episode that I wanted to write um, as a blog post and a podcast episode. And if you don't know already, if you're a subscriber to my podcast, anytime I do a solo podcast, the whole – not all of them. I just started doing this maybe a couple months ago. But they are written out pretty much in their entirety on my blog. And so if you wanted to share it that way, if you wanted to go back and read it, you're more than welcome to do that. On my podcast, I tend to kind of like go off on extra tangents, so you have that advantage. And normally I have um, like a space in this podcast where I tell you something funny that's going on in my life and I just – I probably do have some funny things to tell you, but I'm, I'm kind of like don't really feel like getting into it right now. So I think I'm just going to kind of jump in and – start telling the story and I feel like you know it's interesting every time I come out I think the last time that I came out with something big and told my story was when I I had been sober for a year so it was 2012 and I came out with my story and I didn't do a podcast episode about it I just wrote it and it's an entirely different thing to actually speak the words for me writing there's an element of still being able to hide You know, because like I type it out and then I put it out into the world and then I can just like shut down the internet, (laughs) not read any of the comments, but there's something about actually telling the story into my microphone here that makes it all the very more real. And I think that I'm, I'm telling you all of this not to waste time, well, maybe partly a little bit, but to really emphasize that at the end of the day, you know, I, it's easy for me to sit here and tell you all the the wisdom that I have had over the healing of my life over the last several years and and the things that I teach and preach and all of those things but it's it's a whole nother when I come out with a story and tell you my truth and it's interesting because I don't know someone told me a long time ago and I've, I've always taken this advice to heart about not coming out with stories to your audience, you know, as an online business owner and being in the personal development world, don't come out with stories that you're still truly in the process of and that are still really raw. And that's why I waited an entire year to tell you all about my story about getting sober. Like I needed to go through, through some good recovery and I needed to process and digest a lot of it. And it's really the same thing with this. The story I'm about to tell you is really like what happened in the span of about I don't know, 11 or 12 years. And 
I'm through it. I'm obviously I'm 40 now, 40. Yes. I haven't turned 41 yet, but I think it's still one of those things that to tell the story, you know, I can tell it to my really close friends and my compassionate witnesses, the people that have earned the right to hear their story, but to tell it at a public forum like this, I think there's still that voice that comes in and is like, you probably shouldn't tell everybody this. They're probably going to think you're a big giant loser and, or, or what will they think? And the, the truth is, is that all of us have a painful story. You listening to this right now have a story that if I heard it, it might bring me to my knees. And if other people heard it, you know, same thing. But the more we abandoned our stories and keep them locked up, the more painful they are, really. And those stories help absolutely no one. And that's just absolutely shitty. And I also know for sure that we can't bury our stories alive and expect them to die. They don't. Brene teaches us that we can't go through life orphaning parts of ourselves. Bless you. That was my dog sneezing. We can't go through life orphaning parts of ourselves in order to try to create this persona that we think we need to be. And there's still a little tiny voice inside me that wants to do that and wants to create this perfect persona. And that simply is not who I am. And that simply is really not honoring my value around courage and my value around authenticity. It really just feels like shit to do that. I absolutely feel lucky to get to share my stories here and sometimes scared, but still very lucky. So thank you for allowing me to do so. Part of the reason that I wanted to come out with this story is, is I got this email years ago from a, uh, an ass kicker. Um, this was back, I think probably even before I had my podcast. And she said, when I first heard from you, you seemed like a perky outgoing blonde and these are all great things. But I must admit when looking at you, we might think, oh, she's never been through anything. Yeah, she has great things to say, but does she know what this is like? And then upon listening further, I learned your earlier life actually very much mirrors my own. It was not only comforting, but also a lesson learned about first impressions. And I, you know, I thank you for, <laughs> for saying that. And, and I love honesty like that. And a lot of you already know my story about when um, in 2006, my husband had an affair with our neighbor and got her pregnant. Then I got involved quickly in another relationship that was actually worse than that one. And that really is what... That was my rock bottom. Me getting sober wasn't my rock bottom at all. Getting sober was kind of like, oh, shit, like I can't drink anymore. <laughs> it was different than a lot of people. But me losing my relationships and just like losing myself and realizing all of that, that was definitely my rock bottom. So I wanted to tell this story and uh, talk to you about what happened and how I behaved in my 20s. And I do kind of think for many of us, like our 20s is our decade for us to just like screw up and and be a little crazy, <laughs> whatever that definition is for you. Mine was no different. But I think it was, is it really was um, me falling down over and over again and then finally taking responsibility, looking at everything and working on healing. And so here it begins. <laughs> Generally speaking, I had a great childhood. My parents were loving and funny and generous with their affection to me and to each other. And their marriage fell apart while I was in high school. I didn't know it when it was actually happening. But my mom left soon after I graduated from high school. 
And shortly after that, I sat in a therapist's office um, who actually ended up being my therapist for 20 years on and off. She had also seen my parents for marriage counseling, and she said to me in her office, I'll never forget it, she said, your parents don't really show their emotions very much. And I don't remember exactly what I said to her in response, but I distinctly remember thinking and being confused as to, like, did she, was she implying that there was, like, another way for families to be, like, other families actually show their emotions to each other and like talked about things because I certainly didn't know any other way like I really did not know that another way existed I hadn't even fathomed it we basically had one emotion in our house and that was happy and that was what I saw all the time if you had any others you you know it was clear to me the message was you did it alone and you did it behind closed doors that's just how it was there was little if any element of vulnerability so I didn't know how to talk about emotions I didn't know how to be with my emotions so I certainly didn't know how to be with anybody else's emotions and really what ended up happening is that emotions and feelings scared the shit out of me and this isn't you know I want to say quickly this isn't to blame and shame my parents they didn't know any other way but how were they supposed to parent when they really were never introduced to any kind of personal development. It like kind of really wasn't quite a thing in the 1970s when I was born. So I don't, I don't blame them absolutely at all. And I've actually had conversations with my my parents about this and how I um, parent differently now, and it's all good. But I'd heard people, you know, growing up, like I'd heard people talking about dealing with quote unquote feelings and emotions. And I wasn't sure what that was. To me, dealing with feelings meant the goal was to get over them. Like that was the end goal and to just get past them. So I thought, I made up that I needed to be stronger. I needed to buck up. I needed a soldier on. I needed to lock and load. I was like a hoarder of feelings. I'd find a spot way back, like in the dark closet of my mind to stuff it where I wouldn't have to see it every day, but it never actually went away. It was never digested, never processed, seen, or felt. It just stayed there festering. Remember when I said, like, trying to bury your your emotions alive and hoping that they die? Like, I really, you know, unconsciously, like, thought that that's what I was doing and thought thought that would work. And unfortunately, out of sight, out of mind doesn't work with feelings. I carried them around day after day, year after year, and they manifested outwardly as anger and blame. So I lashed out. I And this is like more so like in my late teens and 20s. I engaged in behaviors that never felt right and made me question who I was. And the biggest thing I did over the course of all those years, like the underlying theme was that I hid. It was hiding from everything and from everyone. I was hiding from the world, really. Because to me, it was like, if the I made up like if the world saw who I really was translation if the world saw that I actually had feelings and fears and shame and all of those things then no one would want I would be rejected like that's really like underneath it all what I was feeling I was terrified to be sane but yet it was the very thing that I wanted so badly so it was like this horrible dichotomy between the ages of 17 and 19 I had three significantly traumatic events happen, two of which I will tell you about. 
So one of those was my par- when my parents got divorced the summer after I graduated high school. And again, it completely surprised me. I had no idea that their marriage was even falling apart. Um, I have half-siblings from my – both of my parents were married previously. And they are older than I was and they were long out of the house. They were out of the house by the time I was in kindergarten, all of them. And um, I was close with my sister, but one out of the, my four – have siblings, but she's 12 years my senior. I adore her. My father is her stepfather, was her stepfather. And so it was really a, a lonely time. I didn't have any anybody really to share in that grief or even really just to talk about it. And of course, like in my therapist's office, <laughs> the therapist's office, what's funny is I, I mean, it's kind of like funny, not funny, is that one of my goals in therapy when I started seeing her when I was 18 was to not cry. I didn't want to cry in front of her. I wanted to just be strong. And then the summer after my parents got divorced, uh, I was date raped. And regarding the date rape, for 20 years, I blamed myself and even had a hard time all those years saying that it was actual date rape. What happened was I was drunk. This guy was not my boyfriend. I told myself I shouldn't have been there. I shouldn't have been making out with him in the first place. I should have tried to physically push him off me instead of just saying no over and over again, over and over and over again. I shouldn't have just given in like I did just in order to get it over with. I shouldn't have been worried that he would call me a tease or a prude. I shouldn't have, I should have, I shouldn't have. I kept that story locked inside me for 20 years and I pushed it back into that back closet of my mind and convinced myself, like thoroughly convinced myself that it was not a big deal. I told myself it happens all the time on college campuses. It happens all the time at parties. Why should I feel anything about this? People have real problems. Mine was absolutely not worthy of even giving a second thought to, let alone telling anyone my story. And that's really, like in a nutshell, what I convinced myself of and and the story that I told myself for two decades. And then in the summer of 2014, when I went to Texas to undergo training um, with Brene Brown and her senior faculty on shame and vulnerability, guess what story came out like projectile vomit? (laughs) That story of what happened. And And really looking back on it and what I uncovered was that when that happened, I felt like I had no voice. When that happened, I felt like I didn't matter. I felt powerless. I felt 100% at fault and told myself I should have known better. And I think what was really happening is that I thought he was cute and funny and I wanted him to like me and pay attention to me. And I convinced myself that I got what I deserved. Really, you know, it wasn't until I told my story um, the summer before last to, again, people that I love and trusted, was I able to release a lot of that shame around it. But it still is not an easy story to tell. And I was 19 when that happened. And I, I had just turned 19. And looking back and connecting the dots, I can see that what happened that summer and it was it was kind of coming but what happened that summer was the straw that broke the camel's back as i entered the decade of my 20s 
And just, you know, a couple of things that happened too was that I stopped writing, which had been my favorite creative outlet as a child even. And as a teenager, I wrote a lot. I completely stopped when that happened. Um, I started to engage basically in three addictive behaviors and they were codependency, love addiction, and an eating disorder. And so I'm going to tell you what each of those looked like and along with it, now what I see as to why I was engaging this way. And and my hope really is, I'm not just telling the story for the sake of telling the story, just because I like to hear myself talk. This is, I, again, like painful for me to like rip this Band-Aid off and tell the story in this much depth. My hope is that any of you listening will look at some of the things that happened in your past and maybe try to connect some of the dots as to why you behaved the way that you did, or maybe you're still behaving this way. And I I want, before I start telling you the way that I um, used to be, this is not for you to say like, oh my God, I act this way, and then have your inner critic come in and, and beat yourself up. And I think awareness is such a huge key factor here, and there might be a little bit of an element of, oh shit, But I invite you to really practice self-compassion. And for me, I hadn't learned that yet. Like when I started to come out of of all of this and realize what, how I had been behaving, I had so much shame around that. And I was just so, like I could not believe that I had behaved that way. And, And when I was in it, I knew it too. But like when I really started to like become conscious of my, you know, into my personal development journey. It was, it was just simply painful for me to look at. And so I had to do real work around that, around being compassionate to the girl that I was in my 20s because I was, I was definitely lost. I was so incredibly lost. So that being said, let's start with codependence. Um, for me, codependence manifested mostly as control. I wanted everyone to behave like I wanted them to. I believed with all of my heart and soul that that, if that could happen, that would solve all of my problems and theirs too. So it was like a bonus for them. Melody Beattie, who is uh, just kind of like the godmother in the recovery of codependence, describes it as, she describes codependence as one who has let another person's behavior affect him or her and who is obsessed with controlling that person's behavior. For me, I stayed in a relationship with someone that I had outgrown around the time I was 18. We started, this is my former husband. We started dating when I was 17. Um, He was not interested, and I'm not making him wrong for this. Like, he just simply was not interested in settling down. Like, my God, he was 19 and 20 himself. He wasn't interested in settling down and being in a serious, monogamous adult relationship. But at the same time, he wasn't ready to let me go. So it made for an interesting time together, I became obsessed with changing him and fixing him and fixing us, although I was not interested in fixing me. I read somewhere that codependency is a way to get your needs met that doesn't ever get your needs met. And I did this essentially for 13 years in my relationship with him. I didn't trust my own feelings or intuition. I micromanaged like it was my job. I people-pleased, I felt insecure and guilty when people gave me things or complimented me. I wholeheartedly believed other people were responsible for me 
and my happiness as well. And at the same time, I felt like they were making me crazy. I was angry most of the time. I felt victimized and unappreciated for all of my efforts in trying to fix everyone. And compliments and appreciation and praise were the things I wanted desperately. But when I got them, I rejected them because I felt unworthy of it. And it was the same with intimacy. It was something I deeply craved, but at the same time, I was terrified of it. And I really didn't know what it looked like or felt like. And I thought that I had it, but it was really a desperate fault sort of intimacy. I was constantly afraid of making mistakes. Perfectionism was my middle name. I had some violent temper outbursts and I had also lost faith in God. It was a dark time and I kept it all very, very hidden, just how much I was suffering. My eating disorder was something I went back and forth with and for a long time I did not, I would never have admitted that I had an eating disorder because of what we saw in the media was definitely not what I was engaging in. What I found out later is that I had something called eating disorder not otherwise specified, also known as EDNOS. I've written about that long, long, long time ago on my blog. But uh, it, it started with poor body image around the age of 11. I wrote in my Hello Kitty, Hello Kitty diary, which I still have to this day. I wrote in there that I thought I was fat. Um, I was 11, so I assume that was around the time I just started to go through puberty. And in my diary, I also wrote that I had told my mom that I thought I was fat and I said in my diary, and she just told me I was average. And that was pretty much the extent of the conversation that my mother and I had around that. When I was 18, a modeling photographer told me I needed to lose 10 pounds if I ever wanted to be even considered modeling. And I was a, like a, between a size one and a size three. Um, I was 26 when I decided was the first time I actually decided to take action and lose weight. I had gained a little bit of weight from my natural size, not very much, but just enough to overhear my boyfriend's friend say quietly, he didn't know that I could hear him, uh, Andrea's ass is getting big. And that made the decision for me. And I was like, okay, I'll just lose 10 pounds easily. And I restricted calories. I exercised way too much and I also purged. And then when I lost those 10 pounds, it was so easy that I decided to lose 10 more. And at that time, I think I was around 25 or 26, and that was, I was probably at the height of my codependency as well. And I was running on empty, emotionally, mentally, physically, and eventually I slowly gained that weight back and stopped those behaviors for a couple of years. But for me, when my life was in big turmoil, and mostly like when my relationship was in really big turmoil, my eating disorder came to the forefront of my life. I felt like it was the only thing that I could control because um, I could not control him as much as I tried, but food and exercise and my weight and the size of my jeans was something that I could. And then there was love addiction. And I think that love addiction is one of those things that, I don't know, not a lot of people talk about that. And um, what's funny, it, again, kind of like a funny, not funny, when I, um, the relationship that I was in after my husband, he went to rehab and I went with him. Um, if anyone's ever had someone in an inpatient uh, treatment center, they have like family week or sometimes it's a weekend or they, they do something where they invite families and loved ones 
to have like group therapy and, and do exercises and things like that. And that's really when it came to my attention that I was a love addict and I, and I knew that I was codependent. My therapist had, had, um, had told me that, but I hadn't been completely forthright with my therapist. Had I been forthright with her, she would have been like, oh, honey, <laughs> we have some conversations to have, but I wasn't completely honest with her. So how would she have known? And, and oh my God, where do I even begin to talk about this? And this one really truly is the hardest one for me to talk about um, because of the the other people that were involved. So again, intimacy was the thing that I craved the most, but it was also the thing I feared absolutely the most. And so I was in kind of a shit pickle, right? I confused sex and the rush of a brand new relationship with love. I wouldn't be faithful in my relationships because I was so busy flirting and chasing men and hooking up with them in order to get that need met. And sometimes I had sex with them and sometimes I didn't. And when I didn't, I felt like that was some kind of victory to myself. Like I was okay as long as I didn't sleep with them, you know, and I had created these markers and criteria to what was okay and what wasn't. And I can honestly look back now and say that I used men to get what I wanted. And what I wanted was validation, love, and connection. And the kind of crazy thing was, was that I wasn't getting any of that but I thought that I was and I would feel good for a little while and then the guilt and shame, oh my God, the shame would come flooding in the next morning and I'd feel terrible about myself as a human being. So what would I do? I'd search for a new guy to chew up and spit out and I left a trail of destruction in my love addiction, uh, mostly with myself. My identity at that time was absolutely wrapped up in my appearance. So the more attention I got from men, the better I felt, the better I thought I felt. And some of the time I didn't even like them. It didn't it didn't really matter. It was it was the chase, it was the rush. I would walk into a club. I mean, this was, you know, this was going on like in my early 20s. So I'd walk into a club and, and scan the crowd for someone attractive and the game began and the cycle just kept starting over and over. And I, I look back now on the girl that I was during all those years and my heart breaks. I was it was such a mess inside and I hated who I'd become. I absolutely hated who I'd become. And there were times where I didn't even want to look at myself in the mirror. I was so ashamed. I didn't even know who I was. I felt like a shell of myself because to actually look at my behaviors the feelings around that and to be with it all was entirely too much to bear. I couldn't even fathom it. So I blamed everyone else. I blamed my parents. I especially blamed my boyfriend and tried to change him. Never trying to change my behaviors or even look at them. Because if they would act right, I could stop. If they could change, I would feel better. You know, if my boyfriend treated me better, then I wouldn't have to do this. And at the same time, vulnerability was such a foreign concept. There was probably a point in my life where I would rather die than be vulnerable. And vulnerability was the exact thing that I actually needed. I was thrust into vulnerability uh, really unwillingly when my husband left me in, 
it was 06. It was the beginning of 06. And at that point, I had no choice but to look at myself and my behaviors and start to break the walls down that I had created. And trust me, those walls were strong and those walls were high. And I did not, I did not want them to come down. But when my life fell apart, I picked myself up and started my conscious journey. I hadn't ever truly taken care of myself. And people kept telling me I needed to take care of myself. And I mean, not mentally, physically, emotionally, financially, had I ever truly been there for me. And what I realized is that I had no idea what that meant to love myself, to even be with myself. I was fucking terrified. I was so scared. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what I stood for. I didn't know what I wanted. I didn't know any of it. I felt like before that I had just existed and existed in this life of these automatic behaviors that were so incredibly painful, but I knew no other way of being. So I just continued that way. And when everything was falling apart, I also didn't realize how tired I had become of people telling me I was strong. And I knew that I, I knew that they meant well. And I knew that everyone was probably so uncomfortable themselves with my situation and not knowing what to say. But what I really wanted, and this goes back to vulnerability and really empathy, was that I wanted for someone to say, hey, things are a mess and you're probably feeling like shit and it's okay if you're falling apart. Just fall apart and I'll be here to pick up the pieces with you if that's what you want. And again, it's not anyone's fault that they didn't know because I made it my first priority to make people think I was okay and that I was strong. I guess I did a pretty good job, but the price of that was keeping myself hidden, was keeping myself small, was buying into the beliefs that I wasn't worthy of being anything more than a hot mess. So it took lots of therapy, coaching, a few 12-step programs, um, several failed relationships and friendships. It took some hard conversations with my parents. It took me getting sober. It took me learning to set boundaries um, and learning how to be in a healthy relationship and have healthy adult conversations. And two of the hardest things in all of that that I have had to learn as I came out of that decade and as I healed was learning to feel my feelings as they are and surrendering to them and surrendering to life and letting it un- letting life unfold as it does. I mean, those were the, really the two things that were really, I don't know if I want to use the word solution, but really it, it has been like those two are, those are the main things because I like to hold on. I like to be in charge of what's happening in my life. I like to know how it's going to turn out. Uh, and I especially like it to go my way, but shit, that's not how life works like ever. I've fought the good fight though. I definitely have fought the good fight and the whole like feeling feelings There are still times that I want to just check out when I tell myself I can't deal with this. And the truth is, yes, I can. I can deal with it without hiding at the bottom of a bottle of wine. 
I can deal with it without distracting myself by chasing down a new relationship. And it's hard and I cry and I get angry and frustrated and scared and that is life. That's life. That's what it looks like. And the upside is that I can tell you that happiness and joy is unlike it's ever been. I feel joy deep down in my bones and in my cells. And that can also be really, really scary sometimes. But I feel happy and grateful most of the time in my life. And for me, I know I needed to like go through the weeds and the muck and all that shit to get here. I wouldn't trade it for anything ever. If you have my book, you might see in the acknowledgments that I, the very end of my acknowledgments, I thanked my ex-husband and told him that he was the catalyst for this. And, you know, he didn't help me. (laughs) I don't even talk to him, but he didn't help me go through all this recovery. But that happening to me was really, um, it served a purpose and kind of cannonballed me into living a conscious life and going after what I think that I was really meant to do on this earth and that is be of service on a larger scale for people that have gone through a path that is similar to mine. They might be different circumstances but similar behaviors in that hiding and not connecting with other people and not talking about like what's really going on in our fears and all of those things like when that's happening that's lonely and that feels like shit and I don't want that for you guys and I I just I guess I want to reiterate that I know how that feels and if you're going through that right now I'm I'm sorry and that sucks and there is another way And I wish I could wrap up an answer for you, like really pretty in a bow. But really what it goes back to is learning how to feel your feelings as they are and surrendering to life as it comes. And so I I hope that you have, you know, one of the biggest things that I've learned through all of this is having that special someone. And if you have more than one special someone's, and no, I'm not talking about like lots and lots of boyfriends or girlfriends. (laughs) intimate partners but that's your thing you know whatever but um that compassionate witness the person that you can turn to and tell them you are extremely scared about something or that you want to be vulnerable but you are so scared of what people will think of you like all of these things that were the things that we are so afraid to have the world perceive us as and that's shame is what it is I hope you have someone to share your shame stories with because I was, too, even though I had those people in my life, if I if I wanted to cultivate those, and I was going through all that in my 20s, I was too afraid. I was too afraid I would be judged. I was too afraid that no one would understand. I felt like I was the only person that felt that felt so frustrated and angry. Um, I felt like it was other people's responsibility just to make things better. So I hope you have that person that you can turn to and tell your stories to. And with that, I am going to sign off. I hope that this was helpful for some of you. And uh, please feel free to share this in your 
communities and um, please be gentle with yourselves out there. It's, it's a tough world, but it's not so tough that you can't handle it because you can. And until next time, I will see you out in cyberspace. Bye-bye.